Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. In today's episode, I interview Daniel Christian Wall, author of Designing Regenerative Cultures. This episode is a break in the recent theme of deep dives with prominent leaders in the blockchain movement. Instead, with Daniel, who's a longtime member of the broader movement towards planetary regeneration with a specific focus on complexity sciences, whole system design, and um, the eco-village movement, Daniel and I take a deep dive into some of the conversations that really have been building up over years around competition and cooperation between different lineages and schools of thought. Um, And really, this is a conversation, this is a very personal conversation that Daniel and I had together, and I'm very excited to be sharing it with everyone. Um, Take it all with the understanding that this is uh, two members of of a community just sort of speaking to each other. Um, and, and I think that that is in keeping with how I am hoping this podcast evolves and, and some of my aims for the way that this podcast comes together is to really have authentic, real, pertinent conversations between myself and other folks who are working at this sort of edge and forefront of, of um, regrowing human economy and culture in service to life. Um, and so this is just a, a very um, in-depth, complex conversation. Um, and I hope that everybody out there listening enjoys. So without further ado, I bring you Daniel Christian Wall. Daniel, I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to hang out with me. And um, there's so much to talk about. So um, I'm excited. Um, me too. I think we we could talk for hours. Let's see what what we'll actually end up talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so much to talk about. Yeah. Well, so uh, what's what's new and exciting for you these days in your life? What has you particularly fired up and you know inspired? Well, I mean, I think you've you've got a little one at home as well. Is it is is it the first one or the second one for you? Second, so I have a two, two and a half year old and a seven month old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I have the twenty five months year old. So two, two years and a bit. Yeah. And of course, that's wonderfully exciting and and inviting me to reprioritize my life. And on the one hand, um, it's re-energizing my work in the world, but it's also kind of um, asking me to say, to what extent do you do the global work? And, if it if it starts to sort of cut into the local or regional work, the the real connection with community and bioregion. Yeah. And, yeah. And I'm I'm kind of running. If I'm honest, I'm 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 I always have this that when I go pregnant with a course correction in my life, it can take almost a year for me to be able to to get the trim tab to turn the the big tab the the big rudder. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to get more local and more regional with with my work to stop traveling so much and um, and to really focus on getting my hands dirty here on the island of Mallorca and 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 what we can do here locally to to create an example for bioregional regeneration in the Mediterranean and 
in a Mediterranean climate, which is big enough of a project. Yeah, well, and um, just as hard as the global work, if not harder somehow, I've always found the, um, there's sort of a demand for rigor and discipline and focus when you get to the scale of transformation that is represented by a bioregion that um, sometimes we can be a little bit, you know, sloppy and hand wavy when we get to the global scale. Cause it's like, it seems like it's just beyond the, the scale of like full comprehension. Whereas when you start to dig into the bioregion, it sort of zooms in and it just requires a little bit more, yeah, fine, fine detail. So, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, sometimes I notice, when I'm honest with myself that I will, um, yeah, I'll shy away from that level of rigor because it's more, it's just easier. It's more sort of, it's more in the comfort zone to stay kind of like a little bit more zoomed out. And when you get to that, yeah, there's just no, uh, you can't get away from yourself basically. <laughs> no, it's, it, exactly. I mean, it's, it's also because it's the meso scale, like um, at the, at the micro scale of, of doing kind of, your little permaculture farm or your little community project with, with a pre-selected group of people who somehow think alike and want to create an eco-village, um, that's complex enough and you yeah. run into enough trouble there. <laughs> but, but, but you can sort of ring fence it against people that you might not at all agree with. Mm. But the minute you work at the bioregional scale, you actually have to work with the powers that be. And if, like in my case, living on an island that is 90% dependent on tourism, which is a globally extractive business that is in, in, in its current form enormously damaging, mm. but at the same time, at least start a conversation about transforming tourism. And, and make it the engine of transformation. Because if I, if I try to fight it and say tourism bad, mustn't have it, then, then I'll just turn it to Quixote 2.0 uh, and <laughs> not much will happen. Uh, yeah. But, but what you were saying earlier, like this, it's so easy, like even within talking about bioregional regeneration, it's so easy to stay at that wonderful level of we're doing it and what we could do and, and, and the communications that like, I mean, my, my friend Joe Brewer with, with his work in, in Costa Rica, um, his com conversations were very much at this level in, in the last year. And it's very inspiring to people, but it is actually when you start talking to people on the ground and you work with the complexity of, of human um, shortcomings and human potential that, that it, that it gets really interesting. Um, and in, in many ways, I've been trying to do this for the last eight, year, eight years here on Mallorca. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit scared of re-engaging with it because I know that it'll get really complex and, and it's not necessarily the way that I finance my, my family economics. Um, and yeah, right. So currently you sort of, uh, have carved out a niche as a as a thought leader and um, consultant and sort of inviting people to engage in um, regenerative culture building and and reconnecting with you know holism more broadly um, that's that's all correct right that's kind of your most of how you're supporting your family is is yeah basically i've been i've been sort of on this journey of of 
I call it an apprenticeship and a pilgrimage of trying to understand how to be part of the solution rather than to be part of the problem yeah. for a good 20 years. Mm -hmm. And while for a long time I did the research with into kind of like did my master's in holistic science and, and, um, and looked at it through the complexity lens and then Gaia theory and all that wonderful mentors like John Todd and David Orr inspiring me to see the power of design. And then, then I did a PhD, which, which I called Design for Human and Planetary Health, which to my mind was already quite regenerative in what it was actually proposing. It was addressing the upstream worldview, value system change, the, the, the need for participation, the need for starting with, with personal development and, and working from place and, and so many things that, that then when I first came across, which was really maybe in 2000 and 10, 11, I came across Bill Reed's paper, Shifting Our Mental Models, and mm -hmm. having heard regenerative agriculture and Dan, Darren Doherty's work and all that for, for a while. And, um, and in many ways, when I wrote the book, I didn't fully appreciate how deep the work that Carol um, Sanford and, and the folks in Regenesis Group, like Pamela Mang and, and Van Haggard, Bill Reed and so on, um, had already curated over 20 years. And I, mm -hmm. I know you're very, very deeply in that lineage. Mm. And, and in many ways, yeah, I, you're right. I, I, I've carved out a sort of, um, what's the right word, advocacy role for mm. we need, like we are the regeneration rising. We need to bring the bigger collection of like-minded people together. And, and may, maybe sometimes I'm putting out a few I don't know what Carol would would think of me saying that people like the Biomimicry Institute and 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 so on are also part of this movement. They're, they're they're taking a slightly different angle, but I'm kind of trying to bring us all into a larger conversation to see that we're actually all broadly aligned. That that in Janine's words, what we're trying to do is to create conditions conducive to life, and um, and I think that there is a depth of practice and, and process and frameworks that Carol holds and that Regenesis holds that is hugely valuable for where, where we want to go. Um, and I've also experienced it a little bit as, as a sort of ring fencing against other parts of the movement. And I'd love to hear your, your perspective on it because um, I, I'm trying, I, I feel sometimes I'm a little bit on a tightrope between wanting to really honor the depth that, that the elders are holding in working kind of deep regeneration and, and to open the conversation to as many people who are now already jumping on it in a kind of bandwagony kind of way and watering down the term. And, and I mean, I recently was at a meeting on regenerative economics where a kind of really high level consultant type shared with me that McKinsey has already put money into building a regeneration consultancy team. And that <laughs> spells like, Ugh. Uh, um, but on the other hand, it might be an opportunity. There's potential in it. What do you think? <clears throat> yeah, I'm not surprised that McKinsey is putting money into that. Uh, it's become quite a buzzword <clears throat> um, through many of our the hard work of many of us, uh, yourself certainly included. And I think that that's an indicator in some ways of success. But also, you know, it's it's not too hard to be victims of our own success either. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a, I, I have a couple of minds here. One is I can be pretty prickly when it, when I, when I see that 
people are sort of banalizing um, the um, potential and the essence of regeneration as um, of, of what I would consider core to regeneration, which is, you know, resonant and deeply influenced and, and sort of like I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders and in the lineage of, of Carol and, and, and Bill and sort of the community um, around that particular community, um, living systems frameworks, um, and sort of an embrace of continuous development and, and really disruption, right? I think that's the unique piece is the embrace of sort of continuous conscious disruption and growth at an individual and, and through all the nested scales that we sort of need to be challenging ourselves. And that the moment that you get too comfortable with a mental model um, and, and start to sort of like solidify around it, um, it will perpetuate its own sort of set of problems, right? So um, ourselves included, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Right, like the attachment to regeneration and sort of like the memeplex around that being focused on sort of like the, the embrace of disruptive the disruptive cycle and sort of like maybe cultivating almost an anti-fragility like you you start to look for that disruption right um instead of solidifying more automatic patterns whereas i think biomimicry and even permaculture by and large are looking to assess and analyze what are the patterns that kind of we can currently see the living world um um, expressing and then we then solidify and crystallize patterns that are as close to that as possible in the way that we interact with one another in the way that our economy forms in the way that our uh, social structures form that's my interpretation and I, and I also you know, sort of regenerative enterprise 1.0 when we published that I just barely met Carol and uh, the regenesis group and Ethan and I pushed that out knowing we had just been disrupted and we were, we were like, oh man, we totally missed the boat on this. Uh, mm -hmm. But we should publish it anyway because it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. It has some good thinking in it that was, you know, a um, reflection of our work in the world. So whatever, it, it is what it is. It, it'll be useful for people. It's useful for us to go through that process. So yeah, I mean, I think, it is dangerous to the, the, the process of banalization of a, in essence, sort of sacred lineage um, is the same process as mining a hillside or mining our soil, in my mind. Mm -hmm. So you, essentially people are externalizing like McKinsey it is essentially sort of externalizing the cost of doing real thinking to other people and then picking, cherry picking the things that they will be able to sell out of that without having like a lot of things about uh, the regenerative approach from the sort of um, Carol Sanford perspective, let's say, I think um, maybe aren't so market friendly, if that yeah. makes sense. They, they demand such rigor and discipline around engagement that as a consultant, 
you just want to just make it easier for people to engage with. We like just make it easier. It's not this too hard is is a common uh, thing. And I think one thing. So <clears throat> I guess I would ask, what is our theory of change? Is it that there needs to be sort of like a lot of people at a low level of understanding, or is it that there needs to be a few people? at a very deep level of commitment and understanding. And which of those is more powerful? <clears throat> Are they, and is it an either or? I don't know, probably not, right? And um, I think it's two theories of change and strategies arguing with one another, essentially. Because, yeah. I would hope it's not, it's not an, a real argument. <laughs> like, yeah. of course, there, there's a level of banalization that um, really doesn't serve. There's also, it's, it's like the, the flip side of that deep lineage type approach. For me personally, there are two. One of them is, is I, I spent a lot of time very obsessed with martial arts when I was a young teenager and, and adolescent. And, and it got to the point where I saw the power of the kind of almost guru-like martial arts teacher that, that just with a glance could make me feel really bad that I'd missed one training. Mm. And it was really inside my story, not, not so much his, that, that all that was playing out. And I, I, um, I see a lot of the structure, particularly Carol builds around her CDP um, group, is, is very similar of this sort of follow the, the essence of, of the lineage and the guru to some extent or the, or the sensei. And what I'm, maybe because I haven't engaged I've, I've been trying to talk to people who are very deeply engaged with it to understand it better. Um, I sense that so much of what Pamela and Carol have, have developed over the years comes from Charlie Crone, and Charlie Crone's work can be traced back to J.G. Bennett's lab, and, and there's lots of other lineages that have influenced, like the people, like a lot of Christopher Alexander's thinking was influenced out of that same lineage. All the work of the International Futures Forum and the Three Horizons framework of, of Bill Sharp comes from the same lineage. Is actually the Three Horizons framework is the tetrad reframed. Um, it's um, so. So what 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 I'm rejecting or, or reacting to a little bit with less with Regenesis Group, a little bit more with Carol is that misunderstood or, or interpreted on a, on a certain level. You could also say there's an American protecting of trademark and this is our little bit and protecting the, the lineage in, in that way and creating another and othering people who are actually part of the same um, impulse. Uh, like my, my mentor, John Todd, a lot, a lot of the thinking is, is very similar. Um, maybe not all of it. And, and so for me, for me it's, it's like rather than us having this argument of do we need to kind of create the small group of Ronin around the sensei who, who will carry the, the pure essence, um, or, wonderful. Um, but let's create them in such a way that they reach out to, to um, everybody else and, and who's, who's maybe not quite ready to engage at that level yet. But therefore, it's great that they can engage with permaculture and, and, and biomimicry thinking, which, which is somehow, for many, a path along a journey to then understand the deeper insights um, that I help with in working 
as a regenerative practitioner. I, I don't know, just kind of. Yeah, I mean, I can see how I can I can understand the. I mean, <clears throat> I don't actually think that the way that the change agent development school that Carol runs, my experience of it being on the inside is not of sort of like an insular um, protectionist community. I do think that Carol, you know, so if you're going to engage, as you know, in martial arts, if you're going to engage with uh, like rigor and depth, one of the things that has to be present is commitment. Mm -hmm. so, so when it gets uncomfortable, you can't just leave if you're going to engage at that level of depth. And so in order to create a community around that, you, you have to lead with restraint. So are you real, do you really want to do this or are you just fucking around? Mm -hmm. Is like one of the core questions. And people have their own reactions to that because then they think, oh, well, if I don't really want to do it, then the judgment is that I'm just fucking around. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that I don't really have commitment. I'm being judged. So like the internal monologue becomes like, oh, all those people are judging me because I have a different path. But really, I think it's better to look at those, that moment of restraint as exactly what it is. Like, are, are you willing to go past this threshold and then and commit in a way that's going to bring you discomfort? Um, mm -hmm. And choose the discomfort. And so there's a lot of different ways to do that. But generally, there, there's like a threshold. And, and I think one of the greatest um, downsides of you know, sort of like green meme postmodernism is the generalized reaction to all boundaries. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a boundary there. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think that it's, uh, you know, it's not like people are sitting around on the inside of that boundary being like, oh, biomimicry, like they don't get anything. Oh, man. I mean, people are on the inside of that boundary going, thinking about what it is that we as individuals aren't getting mm -hmm. and what it is that we're working on as individuals or as a group, that's what people are thinking about on the inside of that boundary. Not at all concerned with how people are or are not embodying something on the outside. Um, that's yeah, no, no, I mean, that's I, people's I, I, business. That's, a, that's other people's business. That's their own personal work, basically. Yeah. No, Whether I mean, or not I, they choose to engage it, that's, that's not, I mean, you can't pass judgment on people for, who knows? I mean, people may have all sorts of things going on um, that, is discipline and rigor um, around that kind of like growth cycle? Yeah. No, that's I, I. I mean, every single person who's in that group I've spoken to speaks so highly of the value of that process to them as individuals and um, to them in in their work. That that I have absolutely no doubt that it is. I mean, for for me personally, I'm I'm just at a stage in life where basically I cannot really make that intensity of commitment that is required and and there is a little which is part of this this boundary that is being set and maybe maybe the 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 the, the potential flip side of it is is that it's assuming that nobody else has also in a sort of parallel evolution kind of way um been working almost in the same way with touching exactly the same principles the same way of questioning the deepening and um just using using maybe different language maybe even language that that isn't quite so um 
complicating for people and, and, and therefore could actually help in, in um, taking more people deeper. And, and that's like, sometimes that's for me the, the, the conversation that maybe we just haven't had time to have yet with regenesism, with Carol and with other, other people who are working in this wider regeneration field to say, is there a way to honor that lineage and understand that it is just um, one parallel impulse of, of that same work that, that might already exist in, in, in like people coming to the same way of working differently? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, but I think that there's a, <clears throat> there's a sense I have as you're saying that, that um, Sure, that's fine. I don't know why we would, it's sort of like, it's, it seems like a lot of energy to try to make, you know, like, I, I mean, I don't think that Carol or Regenesis are trying to, like, they're going to, they're going to approach, or I as well, are going to approach conversations with a particular sort of set of Socratic tools and, and restraints around particular things. Um, but the reaction, I think, is to the restraint or the boundary setting creates a whole sort of like projection cycle. Mm -hmm. People are sort of like, oh, you guys think you're better than us. Well, I mean, that is, that is certainly one way to respond to somebody just asking you a bunch of questions, right? Yeah. Totally, yeah. I, I might respond that way too at my first reaction to that. But I don't think that's the intent, right? Uh, so, so there's that layer, which is sort of like, I'm just not so sure that there is any sort of claim of um, sort of like ex exclusive claim mm. being tendered, I yeah. think. I think there's I an think interpretation of that, but I don't actually experience it that way. So that's one piece. The second piece is, I think I have never run across another community that actually, that sets a high bar around like, hey, if you wanna participate, you have to participate to this level, otherwise, Otherwise, it's not worth it because because if there's sort of a set of there's a sort of a epistemology there around how we learn and how we change and how we grow that there's a certain sort of like um, quantity and rhythm of commitment and attention that I would say we may even be a little bit below that threshold, like what it really takes. I would my judgment would be. The, the minimum bar doesn't actually get there in that community. And I think Carol would probably agree with that and everybody would, but it's, it's still higher than 99% of people can or w are willing to commit to. So, mm -hmm. so, I mean, how do you, how do you cope with that? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that what Carol's saying is it's around will. Like if you, if you have the will to focus on it, then, then you will. But again, you and others may very well be finding ways to have that rhythm and level of engagement in in different ways, mm. right? No, I, mean, the, the I can't. I, all I can say is I can't. Yeah. I can't. I don't have the. It takes a lot of will to engage with that particular school, and so I have access to a lot of will, and I do lots of things in the world. I know that I'm kind of like a in quotes willful person. Like mm -hmm. in the positive way of thinking of agency and sort of like choice, um, conscious suffering, choosing to do things that are d uncomfortable, but that create transformation, regeneration benefits. 
Um, but I don't have enough to just do it on my own or even informally with a small group of people. And my experience of engaging with other sort of like people who are connected to a similar, so there's like a discernment, like what is being worked on in the, in CAD and in Carroll School is not actually around mental models. It's not, that's not what's happening. That's a corollary outgrowth. That like, mm -hmm. that happens, you build capacity in that, but that's not actually what the work is about. So mm -hmm. there is something there. I don't experience, uh, I don't experience that many other people that I sort of like bump into and doesn't mean that I don't think they're doing great work, but just that are sort of like in the, you know, in the, pro in that like crucible process as mm -hmm. constantly and as rigorously as, you know, people who are just sort of all in. And I wouldn't claim that, that I, A, know that. It's sort of an experience, projection, whatever. Um, and B, I have the sense that there's other schools that are running parallel. And as you said, the school that's sort of intersecting and that Carol is currently one of the main stewards of is now about to go through transformation as Carol gets up in age. She's very consciously designing that. And as you noted, that it's a multi-lineage. So, you know, David Bohm, uh, Bennett, you know, Gurdjieff's original work, um, Pythagoras, Socrates, and the lineage. And many people have been influenced by these people. And there's, so there's many strands that go out and there's a lot of amazing, powerful work. And John Todd's uh, among them that are so amazing. I mean, the New Alchemy Institute did, did so much um and 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 john dodd's work after that has done so much um and much more practical in a lot of ways i mean you know just like living machine technology and o the work that ocean arc is doing is just very like i mean that that level of engineering just has to happen right and and carol's not an engineer she's just um she's just a very powerful sort of lineage steward whose who's, who's work is consciousness. Like her work is consciousness. Yeah. Other people have different work. She's yeah. like holding the consciousness flag. Which is, which is ultimately the, I always come back to, like in my PhD, I called it meta design. Like basically if you go upstream mm -hmm. the design process and you change the worldview, the value systems, the organizing ideas we, we um, we employed to bring forth the world together, then then you change everything downstream from it. So it is it is the it is the most powerful place of intervention in terms of design led change is to work with consciousness. So um, I have a question: What other, in your experience, knowing that that's true, you know, if you go for far enough upstream, we hit that point, which is you know, how are you generating meaning, <laughs> and how does that influence your choices? Um, what other schools of thought and approaches are you seeing and um, and are they working? Are they not? What have you learned from your experience at, you know, working with Gaia Education, for, for instance, where worldview is one of the core pillars of sort of the, the pedagogy? Well, it, I think it's, it's maybe less formalized and, and structured. It's, it's like Gaia Education's work, which partially I've, I've, help to build that large 
drawing by numbers landscape of the big puzzle that it is trying to integrate of it's 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 more introductory in my understanding than any of the work that that regenesis is, is offering um but it is a really useful introduction the people who've gone through it i think will be much more agile when they get to a point of saying, and now I want to do a regenerative practitioner training or a story of place. Um, because it, it gives them not just, and that, that was one of the things that I got triggered a, a bit when I did the regenerative practitioner training, that any mention of case studies or examples was sort of, well, that's not coming out of the, the um, essence of place and the story of place. But, but to, to my mind, um, being hmm. aware of lots of good ideas that have worked with other people in similar climates or similar situations and then deeply asking the question could we do this here how would we do this here is this place actually calling for it it still gives you a, a, a more of a, um, a spectrum of, of things to work with and, and so for me guy education is is much more introductory but in a in a very useful way and it it names some of the schools that i would say are of that rigor, but they don't, they're not, like for example, Henry Bortoft's work of working with Goethean science mm -hmm. is, is the same kind of deep practice, like that book, The Wholeness of Nature that he wrote, isn't just a book to read from first chapter to last chapter, it's, it's a workbook that you can spend your entire life working with, because it, it literally, um, you use the word disrupting, it d disrupts your, your habitual thought and awareness processes and takes you into a different way of seeing the coming into being of the world and and, and it is actually strongly inf informed by by Bennett's work Henry Bortov was at Bennett's lab um, and when when he sort of started to work on the nu nucleus of that work so again there, there's a link between the two hmm. but um, and that's what I find so fascinating. That, like, I was I was blown away when I realized that the deeper I got into the work that that Regenesis is doing, to see the parallels to these other lineages and how often they always come back to Bennett's lab in in Combe Springs, and and then of course further upstream to Gojeev and and all the other people you mentioned. But yeah, um, I I. I'm just wondering right now where, like with the urgency that we're facing on the planet, um, how, do we, how do we create a funnel that all the people that are waking up to this urgency and really want to um, shed habits that no longer serve and build new habits and, and want to build skills that they're, even if they had the privilege of a really good education that education might not at all have prepared them for what they're now called to do and so for, for me there's this this um, need to a go beyond just talking about what we need to do which which i don't i don't want to fall into that trap and I'm, i feel a little bit uncomfortable that the last year and a half two two years since my book has got a little bit of traction and I'm getting invitations, I could easily fall into that trap and 
been in that whirlpool 10 years and it'd be comfortable where I wouldn't see my family as much as I would like to, but I'd be invited to lots of nice places and give nice talks. But I don't think we have time for that anymore. I, mm -hmm. I sense a, a kind of level of urgency where I really want to, um, like, for the um, of of trying to become regenerative everywhere on the planet fast enough that we can actually have a chance at reversing current global warming trends and in 30 years time not be victim to cataclysmic runaway climate change but begin to see the effects of 30 years of trying to stop it and and being at a point where we say oh we we did actually make it i i think that the jury is out and we have to work really hard um, for, for decades not knowing whether whether our efforts will actually have started early enough to to come to um, a positive outcome in that sense. Um, but for me that the, the, the interesting bit is that whether we're trying to do the global reversing climate change work locally, locally like in our bioregions, bioregion by bioregion, or whether we want to help each bioregion around the planet become more able to weather the storms that are now coming at us. And um, even in a kind of scenario where I'm reminded of talking to Jana Macy in 2003, where, she, where we were talking about, do we still have a chance? Is, is, it, is it already too late? Um, and, and she stopped in our walk and said to me, Daniel, it really matters how we go out, even if we go out. Yeah, and that, that really stuck with me in a in a deep way. And and so, being a father of a little girl, I I look at her and I kind of say, well, okay, I, maybe I brought you into a world where you will not live to eighty, because of environmental conditions worsening to the point that you can't. But um, but what what can I do in this region for the next thirty? 40, 50 years to make people value the beauty that is still in front of them, even if they know that we've created a trajectory where, where, where actually it's, it's only going to get worse rather than better. And, and really reconnect with the beauty of, of human relationships, the beauty of our conversation right now, like, like the, the, <laughs> we're both breathing and we have an opportunity to spend that gift of life and we're currently choosing to spend it in a, in a conversation that is meaningful to both of us. And, hmm. and, and I, I'm currently very much trying to, to not lose myself in the kind of, I must go and save the world thing, but find a balance between the mundane and ordinary daily moments of saying, no, this is, this is how I can save what's still here by valuing it again. Um, whether it's a morning at the beach with my daughter or a walk in the mountains with a friend. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's a kind of, because I, I, in this weird way, people are hungry for some kind of hope and way out. And there's talking about projection. I, I feel like there's a tr possible trap for me to pro be pro projected upon as the bringer of the yes, we can, let's build regenerative cultures everywhere and we'll be hunky-dory and fine. And right. I, I, think, <laughs> I think that would be a bit too shallow of a message to 
build a global speaker's career on, and I'm not interested in that. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in um, walking my talk with what I want to do here locally. Yeah. Yeah, which is a hard, that, that has to be a pretty challenging um, choice because um, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be the person that people choose to, to hear the hopeful message from. You know, that's a, an honor and a privilege and, um, and an important piece of the puzzle too. Because on the flip side of what you're saying, um, most of the information that people are getting, I think, is, you know, yeah, just like it's, it's already done. And uh, I think that that's a very strange, I don't, I mean, personally, I, I don't really fully resonate with that perspective. Um, I mean, I can kind of go back and forth. The projections aren't great. Um, so, <laughs> you, you know, I, I love that you brought up Joanna Mesa and I love that, um, I love your recollection of what she said, which I really also really resonate with. It's sort of, kind of like the success of our venture doesn't really matter. What matters is how, how and why we choose to engage with it. There's really no other, if, in, for me, there's really no other good choice, which, but to like give it our best shot to, you know, to transform ourselves, to be a, a steward of the planet and a keystone species, really, a, a, a species that increases diversity and health and resilience of, of the biosphere and our bioregions within that. Um, that's a very exciting, invigorating thing. And, and to me, it sort of decouples, it's maybe more aligned with how Charles Eisenstein has been speaking about climate change, um, climate chaos, and an approach to that, which I, I'm um, I'm appreciative of how he's working to change the narrative out of the sort of like pure numbers game. I'm also somewhat frustrated from time to time, <laughs> given that recently I've been focusing a lot of my attention on the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's probably a fairly minor quibble in the scheme of things. Um, but this, it's an important one because I, th I think that we constantly, that there is something about the numbers, like going about, like coming back to that the biggest change in, is in the world view value system organizing idea level. Um, yes. It's, it's the weird paradox that, that yes, the numbers are important because they give us feedback and they can kind of like we can assess progress and all that kind of stuff. But yep. at the same time, while there is truth in this adage, what gets measured gets managed, it's also a whole lot of BS huh? because what really brings vitality, um, beauty, health, dynamism to 
social or ecological systems are the qualities of relationships, the qualities of the information that flows in the system, the, the, the qualities of that unique experience in moment, one perspective of the whole experiencing itself and informing the overall transformative process. And our linear way of like going back to Galileo of separating the world into kind of things that can be measured and the things that can't, can't be measured, like the secondary and um, primary and secondary qualities that he set up, that, that then the scientific enterprise only focused on what can be measured. And now we're trying to find proxies that we can put into our number models that measure qualities, that measure health of waterways, that measure, eh? but, but the minute we use the proxies, we, we actually lose so much of what, what we're actually trying to, to nurture. And, and bring back into wholeness. And, um, and so for me, it's, it's a real, like I, I, I'm, I'm really also keen to talk to you a little bit about what, what, what you're doing with um, the Regen Network and this like blockchain-based attempt to both verify change of state in a piece of land, being able to say, we started with it in this state and it wasn't very healthy and now we've increased health and productivity and so on and so forth. Um, and also it's potential to then, once that that's possible, find new ways for finance flows to enable more regeneration to happen, which, yeah. which is something that is brilliant and needs to happen. And and I have all sorts of question marks of the pitfalls along the way that, that, that might, um, at some point, make us realize that, I mean, in the extreme case, if we put sensors everywhere and we kind of create global allocation levels and, and so on and so forth, we, we, we could create an eco-dictatorship <laughs> very quickly. Um, so, yeah, like... Yeah. Um, wow, there's a lot there. So, I mean, I th so I think that there's, so the problem, uh, I'm going to wait for a second. My internet is a little, there we go. So the, the problem in my mind with quantification isn't so much the the process of quantification itself but it's that we tend to get attached to the, the method or results and the, i think if you engage in some sort of kind of disruptive rhythm of reassessment of what is it that actually needs to be quantified that that matches our deeper intrinsic care mm -hmm. um, and if you're rigorous around that um then i think that the the pitfalls of sort of choosing a proxy and then putting it on automatic and like just mm -hmm. having that kind of runaway train go on are much less likely to happen and so mm -hmm. um so that's one note. Um, the second note is, I think, I mean, the, the entire reason that we've chosen 
blockchain in some way is to avoid or at least create the opportunity to avoid whether or not we succeed or not the sort of centralized control of a um, ecological state quantification and agreement apparatus which mm -hmm. will happen one way or the other i'm here to say whether or not region succeeds, <laughs> this is the writing yeah. on the wall. This is happening. This is something that 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 if we are that you know, and I think there's enough time in you know before things really start to get weird. Um, that the and and the pace of technology and the current sort of like just you know the drift, the social and economic drift is all moving in this sort of like tech techno optimization pathway so so we can either do that well or we can do that poorly is is my opinion i don't i i mean i, I think uh, philosophically and ethically i would probably tend to be i i'm a techno skepticist i'm, I'm more skeptical that 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 it's really my direct experience leads me to believe that um the less technology is between myself and my day-to-day -day interactions with the living world, the better able I am to um, have a um, what we might call a regenerative relationship. Um, or mm -hmm. that is to say, a relationship where I can attune myself in a quick enough rhythm that I'm that my behaviors are coherent with the, the natural world. But that's only true at a small scale. And as a human, I'm also incapable of seeing exponentially. I can't see exponentially. Um, machines can see exponentially. You know, the te technology allows us to have exponential vision in this way through measurement. Right? Yes. But it's it's based on an extrapolation of an algorithm that looks into the future, just cutting a slice of vision out of 360 degree vision that we are capable as as intuitive parts of the whole manifesting the whole way. We, we, we can see the future in a different way, not yeah. in that quantifying way. And the danger of that exponential vision of technology is when, when we say, well, but if we've got all the world's data sets and we've got Watson integrating them all and we've got the most brilliant minds writing the algorithms, we'll get to that point where we just have to admit that we have to write over decision-making to these guys, like the, the AI, because we're so limited and fragile human beings. And that's really the discourse that is very prevalent in, in some people who care in, in the Bay Area. Um, that that basically that what to some extent what you were just saying that exponential tech is unstoppable because it is the trend and and that's where I'm sometimes wondering is that is that really true and do we want to create that kind of world? Um, that's a good. Those are good questions. I'm not sure that uh, you're right. It's possible that it is not true. It seems to be the trend right now. Um, mm -hmm sort of the like software eating the world trend yeah. <laughs> to, to, you know, put a meme on it. Um, well, I want to go back. I, I mean, I want to treat this thoroughly, but I also want to go back 
to your point earlier. I mean, I think so. Our assumption at Region Network and my personal assumption is not actually that you need to monitor everything with sensors. Mm -hmm. um, it's that there needs to be a unified way to audit claims about ecological health. How those claims are made, those claims could be made by somebody, you know, writing a, you know, writing down on a piece of paper and mm -hmm. taking a picture of it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, there has to be, at least in our model, there has to be a digital, there, like the unification is through digital technology. I'm not aware of another way of doing that at scale, of, of creating sort of like a unified global ecological state, you know, ledgering system. Um, I'm not sure how you would accomplish that uh, without digital technology. Well, um, no, absolutely. It's, it's helpful. <laughs> But, but, I, but I don't think, at least for us, the assumption is that it can or even should be automated in any way. Um, I think that depending on the type of agreement that people are entering into, there will, be, there will be a need for more or less density of data and, mm -hmm. and, and rigor of data. So if, if we're talking about local agreements, um, there's a there's a usefulness just in having kind of like um, the the distributed ledger serve as a repository of agreements and basic data support about those agreements. That's very light. You know, it's like you and your neighbor in Mallorca maybe enter into an agreement about you know some watershed management outcomes that are happening and you know, the two of you agree that your friend can just go look and, and your friend is just saying, yep, I checked it out. The agreement was that there was going to be, you know, these check dams further down and a little bit of, you know, swales and some planting and that all happened. And that's it. There's no satellites, there's no sensors, there's no drones. It's just the three of you and you're just sort of like articulating what the agreement was, how you verified it, and that it was or was not verified. And there's a utility to just having a place that you can cheaply store that, that can never be taken down, essentially. So that for, for all of you and for all of your neighbors and for the global community as well, because mm -hmm. that's the sort of scale. So, but on the other hand, you may have sort of agreements with, uh, that are very hard for human eyes to, to see, like a factory that has been putting PCBs into a waterway where it's impossible for you and I to go look at the water and see that, but it's not impossible for a sensor to be put in that says, oh, hey, you know, the agreement was this, this is the baseline for this stream and you've gone past it. And so there's an ability for the community to take action in that way. So, you know, I, I sort of think it's going to be a bit of both worlds, really. Mm. What ends up happening is that, um, and, you know, it's, it's quite exciting and a little terrifying, the level, the sheer level of data that's starting to be generated in the earth observation world. You know, yeah. um, ESA's, Copernicus program and the Sentinel-2 data that's streaming in 
you know, for the last 18 months or so. Um, and Sentinel-1 and Landsat, all these public uh, remote sensing satellite data sets are, I mean, yeah. it's amazing. It's a I, I, was part of, I was part of a piece of work here with, with Ecoware, the detergent company here on Mallorca, where in 2014 we were wor working with Resitec, who is a satellite startup in, in Oxford. Yep. I know Resitec, and, and, yeah. And we, we never really got fully... introduced the team um, a few years back to, to Christian. Um, but anyway, Re Resitec was um, already working on algorithms to look at whether we, like whether we could predict how many, how much almond harvest there was going to be at the end of the season based on satellite observations of the growth of almond trees. So, so, so looking from space at this is a citrus, this is an almond tree, this is a, um, a carob tree, and, and, and being able to uh, look at what the biomaterials economy locally would generate in terms of off-cuttings and, and, and refuge that would be resources for, for other processes. Uh, yeah, and that's going to happen. I mean, those are, amazing. as long as yeah. the, the, we have a global view of the planet now yeah. with essentially sort of like human eyes plus a few other spec sort of like more like insect eyes like the, the spectrum that we have available to metabolize is you know 12 bands at the moment with uh, with sentinel 2 um as long as you have accurate ground truth data streaming in about what's happening on the ground you can calibrate algorithmically and create a lot of understanding about what's happening in the world. Now, is that understanding being used wisely or is it being used poorly? Is it being used to create a, you know, eco-fascist global dictatorship? Is it being used to facilitate grassroots agreements between people to optimize what they, you know, what, what they believe the optimal expression of their relationship with places. Um, mm. I think that that's still in the balance. Yeah, the jury is still out on that. But, and, but in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a related way, because you, you, you said like kind of ledgers, verifiable, that can't be taken down. Um, well, there's... I know that you've had conversations with the folks at, at Holochain, but, and I'm not enough of a geek um, to really understand in huge amount of detail what they're actually proposing, but it's more from an intuitive understanding of the integrity of the people behind Holochain. Some of them I know personally and other, others I've, I've known virtually for, for, for quite some time um, that Many quite a long, quite a while ago, sense that that maybe Holochain has a lot of advantages over blockchain, and um, and and I know that that you've you've looked into this in detail and and kind of made a decision to stay with blockchain. Is 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 there a kind of easy answer to that, or is that getting too technical? Because I but what I understand about Holochain is that it's not just 
a technology, but their entire approach is to really um, give the internet and data back to people and to, to run from the beginning with a biomimetic approach to how they build the entire system. And, and so a lot of the, the, the kind of um, early conditions they're setting seem to be a lot more resonant with what we're trying to do than, than the kind of work that blockchain came out of and, 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 and particularly the, the, the amount of dangerous things that have happened on the basis of it, like, like Bitcoin eating up huge amounts of energy and, and data storage and huge amounts of water in the process. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bundle of things there to talk about. I, I think, I think it is. I think you do have to get down to an a, a level of um, technical sophistication to answer that very good question, um, which is, you know, sort of what is an approach? I think what you're really asking is what is an approach to um, regenerating a a set of technological tools that actually are resonant with sort of the first principles of how life works so that there isn't an imposition of um, sort of a, a machine worldview on top of in, in, in some sort of ill-fated attempt to reconnect humans to nature through the machine. Um, I think Holochain has done a really good job of their storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree that they have, um, that the founders, the sort of founding community around Holochain are all high integrity, amazing people. Um, I think the, you can, you can there are trade-offs in choosing technology. And so you mm -hmm. always have to choose sort of like, um, you know, there's usually three things you can optimize for and you have to choose two and you have to drop the other one, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in the case of a, of a database, I'll see if I can remember the three. I mean, uh, so you can basically choose for um, availability, like can you always have access to the data or not, right? Are you choosing a technological design in which the data is not always available, right? That it's, it's somewhere out there and you could get to it eventually, but you know, maybe it's not available right away. Um, can you create sort of a, the right set of permissions where people only can access what they have permission to access, right? Or is it sort of uh, ubiquitous access or, or not access at all, which sort of like goes to the availability question. Um, can you create conditions where it's easy to, to put information up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where just sort of capture that information quickly and inexpensively. So Holochain is 
currently really and you know and it's a it's an open source movement and it has a lot of room to mature so this may not always be true but currently holochain is optimized in a way that's really good for doing things like th their use their general use cases are things like like a decentralized twitter um however at and, and they would sort of say they're not looking for global consensus about things. They're looking for people to create sort of small subgroups that achieve consensus that, that don't need to, have to, or most of the time don't achieve sort of aligning with other bigger groups, right? In terms of like consensus around, you know, like things like, did I send you some money, right? In their model, that's between you and I. There isn't sort of like a global consensus about that. No one else needs to know, which I think is, you know, there's a, that's a sane thing. That's a sane uh, proposition. Um, for our use case, and th there's a little bit more complexity than this, but for our use case, we actually feel like there is the need for a global unified view around ecological health because there's sort of a single planet and having the ability to create um, from like nested relationships that are coherent with biosphere health, there sort of needs to be kind of like a single unified consensus, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically impossible to do through Holochain without a bunch of extra work. It just creates, like they have not created a system where that is easily achievable, basically. So that plus some other issues with availability and other things have led us to use the technology that we've been building, which, which interestingly enough, actually has a lot of resonance with Holochain, but comes from sort of a different perspective uh, around the world, which I'm sort of constantly, I actually <laughs> constantly, like I love Holochain, I'm constantly frustrated by the sort of like techno, crypto tribal tribalism that's taking yeah. it. it's uh -huh. very i think destructive i think it's destructive um yeah. i can't like you know for a little while there it was like three times a week i was getting emails and text messages from people in the hollow world telling me i was stupid and that i should be using holochain because it would solve all of our problems and i was just like yeah anyway it was uh, it eroded some of my, <laughs> it was an erosive experience for me. So, so what else could I say about, um, what, what, what else about, the, about the, the, the pathway that, that you are taking? One of the quick questions that, that a lot of people would ask is because I mean, I know that not all blockchain applications are as, um, data intensive as the the infrastructure behind the bitcoin but um but you still like for me the the general question with this big data move that we're like the, the this trend towards ever increasing amounts of data being um generated and then stored over a long period of time and then integrated in more and more complex ways mm. that has an exponential and not just an exponential but a hyper exponential growth curve built into it um that, that ultimately there are sets of evidences around 
rare earths running out, the impact of mining, um, the limits of real renewable energy on planet Earth, that make me question whether we're not running into a glass ceiling with all of this, where we just simply have to make a decision. Do we want that all ubiquitous power of data integration, projection, and, and analysis, or do we want to power our cities to the point that, that there's a bit of light until 10 in the evening and, and, and like, like that we can pump water and that we can do other things that, that might be um, more conducive to immediate survival of people in place than, than basically wasting a huge amount of energy on, on, on all this data work. And to what extent is, is what you're yeah, building? Yeah, I don't on? think it's a, I, I mean, I don't think that, the, I think that's a false dichotomy in my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, first off, again, it's, I think it's useful to understand the technical details underlying things. So, so Bitcoin is based on, an, you know, based on an algorithm called proof of work in which essentially you're basically competing who can put the most energy through the most efficient computational process. So it's energy and computational efficiency competing against one another. And it's, yeah, it's built like a, it is built in a way that's like an exponential world eating race that just like doesn't care and it's just gonna keep going and marching and marching and marching. Um, now there's positive, like, like with any dissipative cycle, there's some positive things and some negative things about that. Uh, positive things about that are, you know, Bitcoin is driving profitability of renewable energy um, creation because it's just much more efficient to do it with renewable than it is with coal, for instance. And so it's driving this huge, it just drew, drove a huge, it accelerated the renewable energy, Bitcoin accelerated the renewable energy sector five to 10 years probably in, in its um, a huge acceleration. Just in California or globally? Globally. I mean, most of the Bitcoin mining is not in California. So it's a global, it's a, it's a globally distributed phenomenon. Um, so there's some things we have to thank. I personally think Bitcoin's kind of insane. <laughs> um, but, you know, with any insane thing, there's some positives and negatives. Um, now, the, the blockchain technology that we've chosen is a proof of stake system. You, you can also use different methods of consensus, but basically it, it, it creates a system where um, you can sort of guarantee the integrity of all the computers who are running in the system, that everybody is, you know, sort of like um, acting with integrity to maintain a common database, essentially. How do you do that? There's different ways to achieve that. We're using a proof of stake algorithm to do, to do that. Basically, what that means is that you sort of the, the mining rigs or the computers that Bitcoin is racing against each other, we basically virtualize those and represent them as a digital currency. And that means that your voting power on the network is just related to how much of this digital currency you have. So it's proof of stake. Do you have stake in the network? And if you do, then that sort of gives you, it's sort of like, um, sort of like a market co-op basically or you could think of it like a taxi medallion or something it gives you the rights to provide the work that the network needs to do to create the distributed ledger and to run computations etc to store data these sorts of things it just gives you the rights to participate 
right? And depending on how many of those tokens you have, you have a variable share of those rights. So you can sort of think, you could, you could dial that socially however you'd like. You could put caps on it or limits, but what it boils down to is, you know, the, the amount of energy that Bitcoin currently takes to keep its network running and keep the actually really enormously, I mean, we could go into Bitcoin and how I've become a Bitcoin um, appreciator, if not um, lover of late, it, after I finished this little monologue. But the, so Bitcoin currently uses about the same amount of energy as the country of Colombia in South America. Okay, that's crazy, right? Um, Ethereum uses something like the energy of Denmark or something. Um, our region network at global expression, keeping a global data intensive ledger of ecological health and making it possible for people to make agreements, to query that, to have an understanding of sort of like a global sense of ecological health and, um, and create markets, um, market instruments and other things based on that. Um, you know, at full expression will be something like a high rise in Manhattan. Seriously? Okay. That's yeah. Well, because we're not wasting a bunch of energy having computers compete each other against each other to maintain a network. It's, you know, there will be somewhere between 50 and 300 computers that are running. That's the distributed ledger. So if you have 300 computers running around the world, to, to maintain a ledger, that's, the, the energy of that is negligible, actually. Yeah. And then if you layer on that data storage and all sorts of other things, you start to get a sense of like, what does it take to have a network that's distributed enough, th that it's resilient, that if somebody, you know, because really we have to be thinking, there are people who are gonna not appreciate having ecological states available to every citizen of the globe. And those people are going to want to take the network down. So the network has to be secure enough and robust enough that it's available all the time. So there needs to be enough nodes running. So you have to run enough extra energy to create the resilience so that it can't just be like somebody's computer somewhere that you just pull the plug and it's, it's over, right? So there has to be enough redundancy and enough distribution that it's that it's safe from attack, but not too much that it's just, you, you only need enough, you don't need more. And there's no economic incentive for there to be more in our network design, in like the economics of our design. There's no reason to just have everybody in the world spinning up a region network node. It doesn't make any sense, right? And it wouldn't happen that way. There's actually limits to that. So, so that hopefully that's useful framing. Um, Holochain is not unique in its achievement of distributed systems at energy efficiency, although they might claim to be unique in that way. They're not. There's a lot of people who've done a lot of good work around achieving sort of distributed network consensus and um, redundancy, you know, essentially just at the cost of running the number of computers that you have running in the network which, yeah, I mean, 300 computers running on the world uh, is probably less of a carbon footprint than my yearly air travel, mm. honestly.
Yeah. And but the, and the the other question I have is in terms of. Like, I mean, I know you've worked in in Central America, you know, with your chocolate. Was it a chocolate business that you set up? Um, yeah, uh, Central and South America. Yeah. yeah. Like the the people you you met there, the people on the ground, the farmers. Um, to what extent do they really a have the technological equipment and interest and and know-how to engage um, with that kind of network and all like all these other people around the world who are maybe passionate about stewarding their piece of land and even bringing back forests and rivers and all that but might not technology and therefore um, might have a sort of some like a stumbling block in engaging with with the infrastructure you're building with the region network have you have you thought about that and do you see that as a problem or not i uh, i mean i think it's a reality i don't think it's a problem um i mean i think there's a couple of different pieces here which is one you know the increase of access to smartphones right now is one of those exponential tech realities. So whether we like it or not, everybody's getting on Facebook and Twitter and other things. And so I guess I just have a pragmatic opinion that we might as well be using that technology for something useful. Mm -hmm. um, not that social media is, it doesn't have its usefulness. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> in certain circumstances but so there's that which is that is a fact in the in the you know quote-unquote developing world or the global south that um there's a rapid increase in access and sort of the ubiquitousness of technology in people's lives and um building this on a on a blockchain platform and anchoring it in ecological health uh, around agreements does a couple of interesting things. Um, one is it has the potential to create sort of an, an increase in um, liquidity of access to cash, to money, resulting from ecological stewardship, right? And it has the potential to level the playing field for people who are growing commodities mostly being consumed in the global north and it has the has the ability to give access to you know which which th this last one i have mixed feelings about but i think it's at least people need to have their own choice around access to financial mm -hmm. um institutions like people like there's a way in which the financial institutions have been used for many for, for a couple of generations now as sort of a, a tool of colonial oppression on one hand, but then on the other hand, their like equal access to financial tools is somehow Im an important part of creating a global society that functions well. So it has to be done right, but it is important that everyone has access to a line of credit to start their own local business or, you know, express themselves so that they can 
send their kids to school, they can, you know, link a vocation to um, income. Unless people are choosing sort of non-monetary ways to order and organize their lives and, and govern their commons, which is great. I'm just not seeing that happen anywhere <laughs> much. There are a few examples under pressure. So let's see. So there's that, which is, I think that the, there's plenty of people who have access to technology in the right, at the right level and, and mm -hmm. capacity at the right level to engage. Um, and then on the other hand, there's basically nowhere in the world where there aren't institutions or organizations that, could help with, with it. With, that can help. So yeah. sort of thinking of things like extension agents, um, yeah. we, we work a lot with local NGOs mm -hmm. um, or international NGOs who are already working with these farmers, these campesinos, these peasant farmers in Africa and linking those farmers good stewardship outcomes with increasing their ability to earn an income so that they're being compensated for the public goods that their private property is generating for our global commons is, I think, just, you know, it's a pragmatic, it's short-term solution in a way, but it has the ability to turn that trim tab really quickly, which is how do you how do you incentivize and, and reward and support and invite people to be thinking about the long-term health of their ecosystems? And if you can create financial instruments around that, it's great. And if you can engage, yeah, I mean, the, the aid industrial complex is big and it's everywhere. So there's plenty of people on the ground that have smartphones walking around already data, they're already collecting lots of data. So. So in, in, in the absolute simplest kind of nutshell, do I get it right that what you're working on with the Regen Network is a technology that would ultimately enable any farmer anywhere in the world to not just have to eke out a living on the little bit of money they get for their produce, but that they would also be paid for the other vitally important role that anybody caring for land has always played, which is to be a steward of healthy ecosystems functions. So, yeah. so would, you, you're effectively creating a second income stream for anybody working the land. Um, second and third, because they also will own the data that's associated with their land as well. And so if people would like that to generates, that, that generates, again, if people use that data, they have a yet another one. Oh, right. Okay. So if, if Resitech wants to source ground truth data from Africa to create an algorithm about the, you know, biomass production in order to, you know, generate some carbon trading scheme or whatever, you, there's a lot of reasons why that data might be very valuable to certain people to train algorithms etc yeah so the farmers own that and can essentially sell that so it adds two income streams to a land steward one is the information about their land that that mm -hmm. they're generating and that is associated with their sort of identity in the system and the other is the yeah the public goods generated through their stewardship outcomes and and how far are you off being able to gift this to the world ah i mean so we will have the platform ready for a mainnet launch at the end of this year quarter 
you know, but, but we're probably going to postpone the launch until maybe February of 2020, just because launching in the middle of the holidays is sort of crazy. Yeah. Wonderful. Wow. That's, that's really fast going. Like, because it wasn't really like when I talked with Christian Shearer, who was it last year at the reporting 3.0 conference, um, the timeline was, was further, further away. So you've, you've almost got faster that you, you've achieved what you tried to do faster than, than you thought it would take. Well, we'll see, right? Um, <laughs> no, I actually think we've been shooting for a quarter four of 2019 launch mm. pretty much the whole time, I think. Maybe it was just that it seemed so far off back then, yeah. um, <laughs> which it was. Yeah, so we're in, we're in active pilot. We have a pilot running in Ecuador in the community that um, I've worked with for many, many years um, in Cacao. We're... We're, we have a pilot in California with um, people grazing vineyards and in the peri-urban area doing fuel load reduction. We have a, a pilot running um, in Australia doing biodiversity offsets. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a number of different pilots. Right now, where we're at, we're, we're really trying to just focus on a single agreement type, a single contract type, and a single user sort of um, class of people who are on the funder side who just like have something they need and, that we can scale and get adoption. We've sort of done a lot of, you know, broad work testing different pieces. We have a clear roadmap on the platform and blockchain level of what needs to be built, you know, and, and, and how it will all function. And we're on our third test net so we have already uh, 35 of the 50 nodes that we're going to be launching with are up and running and people are, you know, there's like a distributed global compute system running a test net right now that, you know, we're sort of running through its paces and, you know, every once in a while I'll try to crash it in different ways. And, you know, um, yeah, so there's a lot moving. It's been quite a, been quite an experience. Like I'm not a technologist. I don't have a background in software engineering. So um yeah it's been it's been an interesting endeavor beyond my capability <laughs> yeah but you've you've pulled a team together that made it capable which is which is amazing like um it's quite like hats off um, yeah, particularly when 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 it's not used to bring the right people to make this happen because it's it's something like just the, the, the sort of core idea that we need to find a way of double pay the stewards of the land for the most important piece of the work, which is not to just suck a little bit of produce out of that land, but to, to actually heal the land and, 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 and improve it and, and maintain it. That, that was an, a brain fart for me a few years back, um, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't have the, the chutzpah to, to actually pull together a team and make it happen so i'm really glad you did <laughs> well you know the, and what we're doing i think is sort of a it's somewhere at the intersection of commons sort of like common stewardship and a market-driven approach which is mm -hmm. sort of like this pragmatic this very pragmatic way of creating contracts that are logical in today's market economy and just like people just use, 
But then on the other hand, in order to do that well around a public good, you basically have to set up the whole infrastructure so that if, and all of what we're doing is open source. So actually the interesting thing here is if people, if communities would like to engage in setting up commons management agreements with one another that are non-monetized, that simply say, here are the stakeholders, here are the things that we're, you know, here are the outcomes that we're looking for, here are the stewardship outcomes, you know, here are the consequences, here are the, you know, benefits, you know, essentially what we're creating, people can create completely non-monetary agreements with and either use our platform or fork it, clone it, spin it back up again and have their completely their own community system working. Um, mm -hmm. Wonderful. And that's where it's very exciting, I think, which mm -hmm. is thinking of people engaging, you know, I sort of have this theory that what we're creating right now is like training wheels for the, the regrowth or regeneration of a vestigial organ that humans that have has atrophied in humans, which is mm -hmm. a cultural organ, not an individual organ, which has to do mm -hmm. with the linkage of the perception and intuition and understanding of landscape health and how our cultural um, rituals and our governance reflect our ability to maintain a right relationship with the world, mm -hmm. right? And right now we're building this sort of technological apparatus to do that. I think it's more like crutches than it mm -hmm. is like building a set of legs, right? The, yeah. the legs are still there, but they're cultural. And in an atomized, fragmented, market-driven society, the pathway back to having that capacity has to check a number of boxes for people to be able to engage with it. It has to meet people where they're at. It can't be an abstract sort of, uh, we can't demand that people yeah. all of a sudden, you know, wake up to, you know, the-, the and, No, I completely hear you. I mean, for me, for me it's, it's like, it, that's why I think it's such wonderful systemic acupuncture or systems Aikido that, that, that you're doing there. The, um, the, the, the issue with with um, I mean I think that a lot of people who are trying to turn their big companies around at the moment what I keep bumping into is like all these consultants who who want to sell to people I can turn you into a regenerative company I think that that is actually an overpromise in an economic system that is structurally degenerative mm. and. And, and so it's how do we, on the one hand, create mechanisms that, like you just described, um, pick people up where they're at and work with the system as it is right now, but also understanding that, that we actually do need the fundamental redesign of our economic and monetary system because it is, it is structured around a zero-sum game that needs losers in order for other people to win and and we we can potentially redesign at that level as well but 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 that will take a lot of 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe not, right? So the question is, how do we think of um, does the deer who gets eaten by the wolf, is the deer a loser? Yeah, it, it, it is in, in a very limit, limited biological understanding of um, how life works as a planetary process because life, like I think we, we get trapped in, in being very speciesist or individualist in how we define success. Life is actually a planetary process. Yeah, but of course that doesn't, help, that doesn't help the deer in that moment. Uh, right, well, so, and I guess, uh, my sense is, as we approach the redesign, and maybe this is where there would be some substantive argument between myself and the founders of Holochain, like Arthur Bra. Um, mm. Maybe not. Maybe I'm not correct about that. But the the, the key question here is not how to erase rivalrous dynamics in, in human society. Mm -hmm. The key question is how to make the, no matter what the outcome of those rivalrous dynamics, um, for the individuals involved, for systemic regeneration to be the emergent result of any and all rivalrous engagements. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, a deer getting eaten by a wolf is regenerative for the ecosystem. So um, that, I guess, is part of our aim at Regen Network in an in a abstracted way. You know, if you think about it at, at a couple levels of abstraction, is using game theory and sort of economic realities to create a situation where there are still rivalrous competing dynamics, but the result of winning or, or losing is that the system itself of life yeah. gets healthier, which is right now which the emergent, the system that gets healthier right now with rivalrous competition in the business world is the system of world eating capitalism. That's yeah. what gets healthier, yeah. right? Um, but, but the the rivalrous dynamics themselves, like compete, businesses competing to, to build a better product or consultants competing to give a better service, um, or what we're trying to do, farmers competing to be the most ecologically regenerative, <laughs> which is, I think, very fun. If you had a whole bunch of people competing to do that, it would be brilliant, yeah. right? Um, yeah. it, it's, I, I think it's, uh, I think it would be a mistake to try to short circuit the impulse for people to be kind of competing I mean, in I, some way. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I often think, use, use the sort of metaphor that I tell people that in our storytelling about how life works, it's not that competition doesn't exist, but competition is really what we pay attention to. It's like the, the loud waves on the surface of the ocean when you stand in front of the Pacific and you hear the waves crashing. You think you could easily think that the ocean is all about the waves, but but really, mm -hmm. symbiosis and and um, and the process of neg entropy, that the the centrof centrophic process of life creating conditions conducive to life as a planetary process, mm -hmm. is so much more vast than 
the competitions that fine-tune it on the surface, but it doesn't yeah. mean that the competitions don't exist. Yeah. Well, and that's the it's experience. Just, the experience yeah. is somehow the the competition. You know, the 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 easiest experience on the superficial level for people to connect mm -hmm. with. I think that's a beautiful metaphor, Daniel. The the metaphor of standing on the ocean and asking, "Is the nature of the ocean these waves you're hearing?" Mm -hmm. I think that's a uh, that's right on. And I think you know, even Charles Darwin understood that. You know, yeah, it, completely, and, and he, has been misquoted ever since. Yeah, I mean, he never even used the term survival of the fittest. He, yeah. he, he used the term survival of the fit. And yeah. what he meant by that it's is team. how team. well do, does the organism fit? And yeah. more often than not, as you're saying, that means reciprocity, uh, symbiosis, and cooperation, because that's how you achieve fit, because you become, you become, um, you know, the, the world just can't do without you. <laughs> the, it, one thing that I just wanted to quickly check, as, as you roll out the, um, like as you launch the network in the early next year, um, do you also have a sort of um, next stage plan already? Like one, one thing that I can see, for example, where a conversation that I, I would love to help facilitate at some point, and there's no rush, um, I think you, you busy enough with getting things launched is, for example, Willem Favela's work um, with the Common Land Foundation. And yeah. um, like Willem's really committed um, and this four return strategy, um, three landscapes, 20 years is, is, is a wonderful way of communicating to people what to some extent is an abstraction of basic permaculture principles or basic uh, um, ecological restoration principles. but but it, it does bring a lot more people in. And I feel like what you're generating is like, or what, what, what you're creating as a tool is gonna turbo boost the impulse that Common Land is trying to bring. I hope so. I would love to work with Common Land. Actually, the, um, the pilot in Australia is a subsidiary of Common Land uh, oh, or okay. affiliate, not-for-profit affiliate. So. So we sort of have the opportunity to sort of like test some things there and then and then sort of like go back and and have a conversation with the mothership, as it were, and say, hey, so this is what went well. This is what we can improve. You know, what does it look like to roll this out at a landscape scale? Um, yeah. And, and the work that that John Liu is doing. Um, um, I, mean, I mean, ERC sits in, in, a, in a kind of very almost homeopathic way within, you know how Common Land helped to, to spawn ERC to some extent. Like, it, like the, well, for me, it, the, the relationship is, is, is exemplified with the, the, the ecosystems restoration camp in Southern Spain is mm -hmm. six hectares. Mm -hmm. And the Alvalal project, which is the Common Land project in Southern Spain is one million hectares. Mm -hmm. So, but, but the, 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 the power of educational impulse that comes with the, with the ERC is, is wonderful. And I've just, like today, I've been on a call with, with, with John because John earlier last week said, because everybody's now talking about the Amazon with the fires and the, the, the social media um, attention that, that particularly the Amazonian fires have gotten. Um, he was saying, can we set up a camp in Brazil quickly? And I put him in touch with, with some people that already have large-scale ecosystems restoration projects that 
it would be ideal. And but but what I always find is that we need to work in the scale linking way. And and I think your your, your technology would enable that in a huge way. Um, to on the one hand, have these small projects on the ground, but the, from the beginning, see them in these larger landscape um, transformation processes that, that Commonland is pioneering. And even having agreements on both scales. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a fantastic approach. And, you know, really that would be the sort of, we're trying to build tools that are, sort of custom built for, for that particular audience in order to supercharge the work that they're doing, in order to make it simpler to, to cross the bridge between sort of like a commons management approach where you have access to the tools, you can make agreements, you can monitor and verify and steward a, a complex ecological commons with, with a complex social uh, system, like a complex set of stakeholders and also be able to translate as appropriate ecological outcomes up into financial instruments and market systems. Mm -hmm. Because we do need, like, you know, we have to build a bridge between the sovereign wealth funds and, you know, <laughs> the, the huge flows of financial capital back into living capital. There just has to be a return of, of that money. And then a generation of a new set of capital assets that are, you know, linked to and derivatives of the health that's mm -hmm. being stewarded, you know, and I think that's a really exciting way to bring liquidity to the global regenerative movement more broadly. And yeah, and sort of in a way to, at least in the short term, to harness financial capital markets, because I can't, I personally can't think of any better or more feasible way to you know, the next 10 years, we have to do a huge amount of work. And it, as you said, the next 30 years, we have to be really on our game as a global civilization in taking local action and local, local regenerative results. There's, that's going to take a whole bunch of money um, and a transformation of a lot of people's about, livelihoods. About 30 trillion a year, according to some friend of mine who's calculated it. Right. For, and for so... If you think about what that looks like in terms of like a, a transformation and change, mm -hmm. um, it will be a financial bubble that makes the dot-com boom look tiny. And it makes the, you know, the housing bubble in the U.S. look tiny. That's how financial markets work. To think that it won't be a bubble, I think, is wishful thinking. But it will be, you know, it's like, you know, and there's nothing more interesting than linking to me than linking the greed competition like driver to ecological yeah. health. Yeah. If, if we are all competing to be the most optimal ecologically for the next 30 years, and there's a big financial bubble around that, and people are speculating and they're they're putting millions and billions of dollars into different ways of become of achieving ecological regeneration because it's going to be the next big thing i mean then then we, it's happened then yeah no but 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 it, but it <laughs> but what you just said makes it brings it back to is really important what we measure and how we measure the qualitative aspects that's right 
other, it otherwise has to be we, it we has to be done run, well. we could run in the in in, in the like and just uh, just as a kind of one of the things that, that has popped up on my radar recently because i keep um repeating this talking piece around not getting trapped in quantitative only measures that how do we work with the qualities of systems and um have you come across blue model evaluation yeah that, uh, it, I, I i'm only starting to look at it but it seems to me like it is it's it's also a piece in that that larger puzzle um i haven't dug super deeply in but i have come across their work i don't i don't remember where maybe in reporting 3.0 context i'm not sure uh maybe bill sent it my way i'm, I'm not possibly, possibly through the if you're connected to any conversations within the Re regenerative communities network and Stuart cohen and, and those um those guys capital institute they they're edging a lot closer to it um glenn page is working with it a lot in maine um okay and Anyway, I, I thought I'd just drop the drop it with you because I think it, it might just be useful to your team as well. Um, yeah, cool. We'll definitely check it out. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, I think there's a couple of pieces here. One is, in general, my thinking about this is that actually this is one of the layered markets that we're trying to assemble, which is a competition of around um, what gets measured and how it gets measured and how that translates into, you know, uh, I guess what, what Nora Bateson would call sort of like a warm data approach. Like, is it, is it actually, have you, are you familiar with her work? Yeah. yeah. Is it actually, uh, are we answering the right questions basically mm -hmm. with these approaches? Um, if there's, you know, sort of friendly competition around that, that it drives, you know, a huge amount of innovation. If we get sort of stuck and stagnant in a situation where there's like one way and that is the way and everybody, you know, then it will, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think then we'll start to trend towards the, you know, like eco-fascist nightmare that you were talking about, which is, you know, where the, the, this is the way that we measure, this is the way that we you know, uh, make decisions based on that measurement. If that's a singular monolith, it will be, I think, problematic. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I really loved your answer to that in terms of um, just being willing to disrupt your own system and, and question your own system as often as, as possible. Like to, to, to not just, I mean, most, most technologies have that problem that, that earlier decisions in the design and then it just and rather than questions whether the water is running in the right um, groove if you if you understand the metaphor and um, yeah so, so so it's it's really important to revisit over and over again are we measuring the right thing and and, and to do it with that valuing the human com complexity of being able to assess health as you were saying, like it's it's a set of crutches, but but it's trying to to help an atrophied but existing organ, and our ability as part of nature and landscape, and not apart from, to mm -hmm. in a very holistic sensing, feeling, intuiting, and thinking way, to 
assess health and wholeness of our communities, ecosystems, and everything is is it's still there. And so, how do, how do we value these these more subjective experiences? Bring them into an intersubjective consensus of a number of people doing it, and 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 run that against whatever the the current measured proxy in the system is to to make sure we're still on track. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I think ultimately this is, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, distributed ledger technology broadly, blockchain, holochain, Bitcoin, whatever it might be, is all of it is a social technology, interestingly enough. All of it is, it is only useful if a group of people decide that it's useful. <laughs> it is only useful to the extent that there are developers who are engaging to upgrade the code and you know there are people engaged in governance of the system and um there's like a derivative process out of that that there's a magnet which is a common currency which relates to the technology and the bundle of assumptions about the world, right? Um, and I think at Region Network, we're doing our best to, to source that generation of a new derivative value, you know, which is the right to participate in the network that creates a global ledger of land health, land state, and makes it possible to make agreements on that, and sparks, we hope, competition between members of the network and beyond around being the most ecologically regenerative and providing the most accurate um, proxy data and providing the most rigor and um, approach around how we make claims that if there's sort of like that, that if there's a strong enough community that holds those values and has a common unit of measurement around um, you know currency that gives you the right to participate in that and kind of like is is a symbol of the social contract that we can then in a non prescriptive way without any single person you know anybody's ideas are welcome throw them in and compete with them basically like mm -hmm. as long as they're moving towards that same goal we can unleash a lot of what i would consider to be sort of stagnation at this you know nascent state of the planetary regeneration movement which is that we're still, there is no arena for our ideas to compete against one another in, in actualizing bioregional or planetary regeneration. So we just argue with each other about it. <laughs> you know, like, like what is the most effect, what a joyful race to be in, to like who can most effectively regenerate a bioregion? You know, is it through a story of place mechanism or, or are we, you know, doing something with the Biomimicry Institute, who cares really at the end of the day? Let's see, let's see what actually works, right? And let's have a common sort of unit to measure that in a way so that we can just sit around in our yearly gatherings and congratulate each other. And, you know, humans are humans. There'll be all the little weird competitions and social dynamics and great. It's just part of being in the village, you know, that's, for better or worse, that's that's at least my yeah. experience of being human. <laughs> yeah, and, and and as a deep lesson from 
the regenerative lineage in gospel, it, it, it will be different from each, for each place and each bioregion. Um, yep. It will, because it has to come out of that place. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, it's kind of as a loop to the beginning of our conversation since we're almost, or we have been in it for two hours now. Um, the, it's this, how to contribute to the global conversation and, and rebuilding of that atrophied muscle of being um, healers by nature. Um, of, of, of really um, taking the potential that is within us as conscious reflections of the whole that we also emerge from um, to, to contribute health, wholeness, and, and well-being to it. Um, and, and that needs a lot of global learning across continents and, and technology is wonderful, like the, without Zoom having created this wonderful technology we're just using, we wouldn't have had this conversation so easily. Um, and I think both of us have a immediate personal life to get back to and how to find the, the tension between both of them. Because this, for me, this has been wonderful and wildly rich. And, and then I also want to round about now check on my daughter and and um see whether she's about to go to bed and um what i can do in that world uh, yeah. and, and so it's i think that it, i've noticed this a lot in my conversations with the people of the regenerative communities network uh, and the capital institute's impulse of connecting all these bioregional impulses around we're going to create an example of a bioregional regenerative economy and creating these peer-to-peer -peer learning networks where they can all come together and, and learn from each other. And it's hugely important and it creates a movement and it creates energy behind this impulse. And it could, in the worst case, create some form of predatory delay um, because it could slow people down to actually engage with the messy work in their bioregion that they were about to embark on when they got sidetracked by, um, too many Zoom calls about what, how are we going to do this um, yeah. rather than doing it and, and learning by doing. Um, yep. And that's certainly the, the paradox I sit with at the moment a lot is advocation, network building, global weaving, um, communicating ideas because they ignite people. All of that is really powerful work. Mm -hmm. and, and it's also really important to to stay in integrity with with practicing what I preach, and and that's why I'm I'm trying to get more community based and and regional based again. Yeah, well, I'm excited. The next time we chat, I imagine you'll have lots of stories from the journey of engaging there in Mallorca and. Um, yeah, let's 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 have another chat on that because I'm I'm actually writing up eight years of all the the, the things I have done in at the moment, and. Um, and I'm amazed how it all does add up. Like I felt I didn't do enough locally and I realized that I actually have. Yeah, 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 awesome. Well, so, Daniel, it's been, yeah, it's been beautiful to connect after all these years of following you and um, yeah, grateful for your work as a weaver and, um, and a leader and, and an inviter into the, um, into the world that we need to create. So I'm, I'm super grateful.
Well, the, the gratitude has come definitely both ways. You're one of the people I learned from on the way, and I hope to learn with a lot more in the future. So, yeah. um, blessings. Amen. Yeah. Have a right. beautiful evening. Ciao. To you. Bye. Thank you.